You're listening to The Story Connective. In this episode, we hear the story of how Art Medeiros is helping to revive one of the rarest, most endangered forests on Earth. If I could dream one thing, it would be that every person on Maui would have the opportunity to go to Wahi or a place like it and plant a tree. Welcome to The Story Connective. I'm Rebecca Rhapsody. And I'm Loxley Clovis. The Story Connective is dedicated to documenting and sharing inspiring stories of possibility, resilience, and cooperation. In this episode, we hear the story of the Oahi Reforestation Project, an initiative to reforest parts of the island of Maui, Hawaii. Hawaii is home to some of the rarest plant species on Earth. It's known as the endangered species capital of the world. Dr. Arthur Medeiros, champion of the Oahi Project, is a research biologist and has over 30 years of field experience studying Hawaiian ecosystems, particularly dryland forests. His PhD thesis, published in 2004, focused on the biology of the island of Maui. This podcast episode is part of our series called Re-Envision Maui. For a background history on this topic, please check out our first podcast of the series titled Before and After Sugar. For those of you listening that have had the pleasure of driving Maui's back road to Hana from Kula to Kipuhulu, you've driven through the famous land district, the famous Ahupua'a, known as Oahi. This Ahupua'a, located on the dry leeward side of Maui, has gone through much transformation over the last few centuries. Today, when you drive through this land district, you see an ecosystem that's dominated by brownish grasses, barren lava rocks, and a few scattered shrubby trees. Yet, Arthur Medeiros shares with us a very different Oahi. He explains how this landscape, before human contact, was one of the richest botanical regions of Hawaii. This land used to be a dryland forest covering the entire slope of Maui's great volcano, Haleakala. The biological diverse Oahi forest once thrived from the top of the mountain to the ocean, and it used to have one of the highest numbers of distinct plant species in the island chain. Today, Oahi forest is one of the last places where certain trees once used by Hawaiians for farming tools, fishing equipment, weapons, canoe construction, and spiritual practices can still be found. After Art got to know some of these trees, some of which are the last of their kind and not found anywhere else in the world, he has tried to do what he can to save them. Since 1997, the Oahi Forest Restoration Project has been replanting this ecosystem. Together with Leeward Haleakala Watershed Restoration Partnership and Ulupalakua Ranch, the project has reclaimed and protected tracts of highly endangered forest at Oahi as biological and cultural sanctuaries. With the help of volunteer tree planters, the project has managed to successfully restore some of this remarkable native habitat. The region of Oahi Forest that Art and his volunteers have restored is protected by a square-shaped fenced enclosure, and you can really see the difference they've made. It's a square oasis of green native forest surrounded by dry scrubland. The aerial photographs are striking and can be found on the internet. 
Art Madeiras's expertise and passion is deeply steeped in Hawaiian geology, biology, culture, and history. So you will hear a lot of Hawaiian vocabulary in this episode. We are grateful for the mana'o, the knowledge that Art shared with us through this remarkable story, and hope you enjoy it too. Thanks for joining us today, Art. Thank you, Rebecca. So you have this passion for native biology and wanted to learn all the Hawaiian mm -hmm. names for things and then the scientific names. Mm -hmm. And how did that lead to the Oahe Forest Restoration Project and the Pu'uokali Willy Willy Oahe Dryland Forest Project? Mm -hmm. There's a story I tell sometimes, and it's that uh, when I was a young man, I was shy. And so I always wanted to go in the forest, almost to be alone in a way, or to be in quiet, beautiful, cathedral-like forest. But then I tell people I made a mistake. I learned the names of everything. And so when you learn the names of everything, then you start to have personalities and you start to understand them as individuals, I'll say. And then in Hawaii, there's another sad part, which is you realize that they're all in trouble. And frequently you're seeing their death or their dismemberments. I told people that you're troubled by this and it would be all over, but you realize now, the first time I tried to help them, I realized people told me, oh, don't even try. They won't even work to help them. But when I did try to help them, uh, the systems responded. I think that was, I tell people that's the hanapa'a moment. Hanapa'a, the fisherman term, when you hook the fish. Mm. But then I realized that if you love these things and you realize they can be helped, now there's a moral obligation. And I tell people you're, uh, I, t I told somebody once, you're not Noah anymore. You're not, Noah is the word for free. You're not free anymore. Um, you have kuleana, you have a responsibility. Or you can ignore it, but it's like ignoring um, your responsibilities is something you care for that you know is in trouble is it's almost a litmus test for uh, the good parts of humanity. Oahe is a fenced-in enclosure on the leeward side of Haleakala. What has been the the methods that you've mm -hmm. used to reforest and start regrowing the Hawaiian mm -hmm. rainforest, sorry, Hawaiian mm -hmm. dryland forest mm -hmm. on that side? So I'll just rephrase it that Oahe is the Ahupua, Thank and you. then within the Ahupua'a is an area that they call Oahe Forest, and that's kind of like from I don't know, 2,000 maybe to 5,000 feet. It's kind of almost like a kipuka area, and that's the richest area. And I made we made some exclosures. I made them square. You can see them on Google Earth. Uh, we made them square deliberately, just so that people wouldn't confuse them with natural features, so that they would invoke curiosity with the, at that point, brave thought that they would be green in the future, because at that point they were not green. They were only green with grasses, now they're green with forested. So the first one was 10 acres. Second one was 23 acres, now there's another one, 23 acres, and the ranch has given another 150 acres to further conservation. I, I, I can't go on probably without talking about the ranch as a partner, if that's okay. Yes, please. Because uh, I started off with the National Park Service, Haleakala National Park. So one of the things we wanted to do was do a survey of Southern Haleakala to see what was in Haleakala National Park. So we contacted all the Southern Haleakala landowners, and Ulupalakua Ranch was, I don't want to say suspicious, but they were just, well, why are you here? And we said, oh, we're doing surveys. and they made it kind of clear that, look, we'll trust you and you trust us. And it was kind of the beginning of a handshake relationship and us actually getting to know each other as individuals. Mm -hmm. And they would always were very curious about what I found. They were probably the ranch that was most, landowner that was probably most curious what I found every day. Well, what did you find today? And one day they said, well, what are we going to do about it? I was shocked. You know, these are cattle people. And they were giving an Oahe forest to us is a wahi pastor to them and it's one of their most valuable pastors and they they get paid by the number of cows they turn over and you know as they pointed out to me it's not a real 
profitable business many years. And so they're taking things off the top. I call it a PBS type family. You know, in fact, I wrote an article with Sumner. When I started to realize his attitude, I wrote an article with him uh, in Rangeland Magazine because I wanted it to be seen by other ranchers about uh, a biologist and a rancher were publishing together saying uh, something like doing the right thing, keeping a business economically productive and protecting its regional biodiversity. That's what I'll say about the Erdman family and they've given us, they've never asked me for anything. I've never actually, them, I've, asked, I've never asked for anything from them except for the land and they started volunteering money after a while. So they're giving, they give money every year and they give me the lands and all the cowboys know me and work with me and they ask, can we bring the cows into the exposure? It's their land, um, but it's the respect that they're giving that's uh, important for me. May I ask a question mm -hmm. about the agricultural practice of silvopasture and there's a possibility for a coexistence of cattle and forest? Mm -hmm. This is something that Summer has always been interested in, the ranch owner. I have come to uh, be a believer and a non-believer. It's that I don't believe that cattle, cattle can be an important part of bringing back forest as a sequence part of it. Cattle are left to their druthers, are the what Rock called the arch enemy of Hawaiian forest. People who disbelieve that, I usually say, well, then leave a cow in your yard when you go to work. And when you come back in the afternoon, check out what he did to your yard. And then imagine 40 or 50 of them and what they do over a year. And, and if they're hiding from people and going to try to get the moist places of the forest and going to the deepest, they can really take apart forests. That's if they're left un, unattended. They can be really, but the one thing about them is that they're very important lawnmowers. And more important than lawnmowers, they're very good uh, botanists in a way. I think that the role that they can have is in weed-proofing forests and surrounding forest areas. We're never going to reforest all of Maui. We're always going to have pasture areas next to them. I will always take cows of the neighbor over an unmanaged forest area because an unmanaged forest area will gradually come back with non-invasive species. They'll form, uh, this may be difficult, maybe it's not so difficult, almost a diffuse barrier where invasive species can pass through the ecosystems and then enter into the forest. Whereas if I can get the cows to patrol the outside, They'll get rid of any shade-loving weeds, and they'll kind of create. Could you restore, in my in my way of thinking, can you restore forests in on Haleakala without cows? No. Wow. You need them for, to control fuel, and you need to control weeds. Are they going to be in the forest? No. They may be. They may be there sequentially, but then they're out. So, what was it like walking on the leeward side where Oahu is mm -hmm. for you for the first time? I think that my first experience was a little bit. I was starstruck. And so it probably really didn't say much about the area or about me. I kind of was, uh, I had read the historic books and Oahe was always very famous, um, mostly from Joseph Rock's time, the biologist. So when I first got there, I think I didn't, I saw, yes, the damage to it, but I was more starstruck to see these trees that are almost like rock stars uh, all in one district next to each other. What made them rock stars? Just because mm. they're, they're very rare? Very right? rare or notable for Hawaiians. It's almost like legendary for mm -hmm. their ethnobotanical or spiritual uses, um, combined with extreme rarity, combined with what I would call physical presence. So some of them are really tall, stately trees with like foliage that smells like lemons or licorice or something like that. And so they're, you can tell that they have, I don't want to say personalities, but they seem to have personalities. They certainly have a legacy that goes beyond them in cultural and biological stuff. You were involved in coining the term museum forest. Can you define museum forest and talk about what prompted the coining of this term? Museum forest was a term specifically for the Oahe district because it's so rich. Joseph Rock says that you can find more species, tree species here in a day than you can in a week in a rainforest. 
you know. And so here is this incredibly rich forest, but when you walk through it, it's pretty much silent. The birds are gone. There is no understory anymore. There's no seedlings anymore. So all you're seeing is trees that are 100, 100, 200, 300, 400 years old that haven't had babies in 100, 200, 300, 400 years. Or if they have, they've been killed. So in a way, it's like a museum. You can't find these places anywhere else. You have to go to the museum to see these things, but that they're not alive. The forest isn't alive anymore, or at least it isn't alive in its current state. I wrote once with a, once, one windstorm away from being a pastor. Mm. And so uh, that's probably the situation. And yet it's a museum. Uh, I came up with that term museum. Interestingly enough, in New Zealand, they came up with a similar term, sanctuary. Mm. And that's what now I've been using. They call them sanctuary forests. So now I start call, I've started calling Oahu a sanctuary forest instead of museum forest because it's more hopeful and also suggests a forward direction instead of a past direction. Yeah. Even But though we kind of have to earn that in a way, you can't just say, oh, it's a sanctuary forest. No, you kind of have to do some things to say that mm -hmm. you've done the care. Are they responsive to protection efforts? Some of them are and some of them aren't. Some of them come to the party really well. Some of them come to the party after a little while starting and some of them don't come at all. Seemingly, they're almost... Mm -hmm. And we don't understand those things, but, you know, I always tell people, if you believe ecology and you believe species are connected, then my little analogy is if you have a working car engine and you open up the hood and you start grabbing parts and pulling out of them, you're lucky if the car engine still runs. Mm -hmm. And if it runs, it may not run very well. So I tell people, don't be so shocked that some of these species aren't responding yet. They may not ever respond at all, and there might be disease suppressing them. Mm -hmm. But hopefully as we reinstall or restore these practices of pollination and seed dispersal and mm -hmm. soil maturation and the, the, everything, everything about that, I'm hoping that some of these species will come to the party. But I think if they're all going to come to the party, it's going to require people to care about them. And I mean, I care about them as individuals. Whenever I focused on an individual tree and said, hey, what's up with you? And then paid attention a little bit, I usually can discern actually what the problem is mm. after a time. And in some, we've been able to steer steer out of the gut, uh, you know, the little rut that would have taken these species down. And now they're hopeful so that Oahe is one of the last places where they'll be in 100 years. So yeah. that's the good part of it is that when you pay attention, uh, they, they do respond to they do respond to protection efforts for sure. Okay. Uh, but I don't like to make Pollyanna stories that they're all going to come back because there's a few that trouble me because they're so recalcitrant, as a word. They seem to sit there and they're almost like a, monuments in a way mm -hmm. rather than trees anymore. I, I say that many of them probably saw Cook. Captain Cook passed to the south of Haleakala. Many of them probably saw Cook. You know, they're probably the only living things on Haleakala that is if they could remember, would remember the passage mm -hmm. of Cook. Captain Cook being the first British person, first, Westerner, first that Western. arrived in Hawaii in yeah. 1778. Yeah. yeah, and many of them, you know, I mean, probably were, you know, they, you know, they came in early Hawaiian occupation times, you know. I mean, that's when they were seedlings in healthy forests, and now they're the last sentinels yeah. out there. So, you know, if you believe, if you believe in spirituality, they're, they're really important spiritually. If you believe in biologically, mm -hmm. they're just icons of of the past. What is the story of Joseph Rock? Yeah, Joseph Rock, he was born in Austria. A young man wandered at first, ended up on Waikiki Beach, and apparently was approached and asked if he knew anything about botany. And the story is probably that he lied and said, yeah, I know a lot about botany. So they asked him if he would teach botany. And so without knowing anything about botany, he started to teach botany. But, you know, sometimes when you get special people involved with things and they tell a little fib, I don't know if he, but this is kind of the story is that he studied botany rapidly, and he became to love botany and was really good at it. And he also became an incredible collector of Hawaiian plants. 
like 10 or 20,000 Hawaiian plants and a lover of Hawaiians. So at one point, uh, somebody said, oh, I'm going to call you Pohaku. Mm. And so for the rest of his life, he called himself Pohaku, which is a Hawaiian word for rock. He's the biologist who discovered Oahe, I mean, who really noted it. He's also probably the first biologist in Hawaii that's, that had the oh my God reaction. And people up at the then were looking as if they'd found something there, you know, specimen A and specimen B. And I think Rock was the first person to say, oh my God, what happened to this forest? And he makes some comments about the plant is no longer here and all that's left is a bunch of ugly eucalyptus. He was the first kind of person making cultural judgments in a way. I mean, almost uh, backing Hawaiian. He was the first conservationist mm -hmm. in many ways. So he discovered Hawaii, and then he went off to explore China. When China had a political reorganization and his health was failing, he came back to Hawaii. The story is that he fell to the ground and wept at the changes. Joseph Rock, the original discoverer of Hawaii, one of the first conservationists, and in a way kind of um, almost an inspiration for Hawaii that I like to think of the spirit of Joseph Rock could see what we're doing there. I mean, I think he would be uh, maybe impressed with the forest, but more, I think he'd be more impressed like I, I think he'd be more impressed like I am with people, you know, that people would actually care enough and that the ranch would actually care enough. I don't think he saw any of that in his days. Uh, his book, Indigenous Trees of the Hawaiian is kind of like the book. Now, it, he was a great photographer, so his black and white pictures of Hawaiian trees are amazing. That he fact that he listened to Hawaiians very carefully and wrote down everything that they were saying is also very unusual for uh, uh, European white people at the time to be so careful what Hawaiians were saying and to write it down. So, really just, so a lot of what we know about culture is actually out of rock, you know, who was writing, who was just writing down what, what people commonly knew at that time, but, but that was to fade very quickly. 1910 he started, 1919 was his heyday, and the 50s he came back from China. What has surprised you the most about this work? When people, when the forest came back, I was stoked. I mean, I don't mean to say it that way, but I was happy. And I, I think other people were shocked uh, because they thought the forest was the walking dead, right? And I never thought it was the walking dead or I wouldn't have tried something, to be honest. I always felt that it had the spirit in them, that it had, I could see seedlings coming up and I knew that they were being suppressed. I mean, in tiny micro places. So when the forest started to come back, that was thrilling for me. A surprise for me was how many people cared. At the first time, you know, I asked people for help. I thought, you know, in fact, I told somebody nobody's going to come. Even though nobody really knew about the forest, wow, there were like seven vehicles in the parking lot. Those seven vehicles grew to seven more vehicles and people I never knew, you know. And so you always talk about preaching to the choir, right? If you're all seeing the same people, God, you're not, you're not going to win with the choir, okay? You got to constantly, I, I said my dream for Maui was to have if I could have every person, if I could dream one thing, it would be that every person on Maui would have the opportunity to go to Wahi or a place like it and plant a tree. Maybe they have to call it their tree. You know, maybe it has to be, you know, I don't know, Rebecca's tree, you know, Art's tree, you know. Um, if that's what it takes for us to, and, you know, sometimes I have children plant a tree and I tell them, I can always get you back here to see your tree. Maybe that's the connection that we have to have. So my surprise is that people are so willing to rekindle that relationship even in a place that's ocean-based like Hawaii. And I think that that's even stronger today with the renaissance of Hawaiian values, both from the Hawaiians and from non-Hawaiians that want to have an insight into what a Kuila tree looks like or wants to see the Lama, the most spiritual Hawaiian trees, that that means something to them. That means something as important as going to the aquarium or something like that. I'm going to say it that way, but you know, you hear people going to the aquarium, well, do they want to go to Oahe and see the Lama tree? Because that's the only place where you can see it. It's like a whale in a way, except that it's known for Hawaiians as being the spiritual tree. The tree that when Dalai Lama came to Maui, he took arrangements of lamas to a room of lama trees and told him it was about spiritual enlightenment. And he said, 
wow, there's all this trees, like there's all this a plant somewhere around the world that represents light and enlightenment, and this is your Hawaiian tree. For me, I consider that a treasure. And even somebody went to my ass, told people, well, you know, if there was something sacred, and I asked you to, like a sacred structure, and I asked you to carry a stone of a sacred structure, how would you feel to carry the stone? Wouldn't you feel honored when you're rebuilding ancient forests? You know, I like to think people should be feel honored. And, you know, that sounds funny to me, but I like to empower them with information. Information is what makes something important. If I should give you a rock or something, I'd say, here's a rock. Oh, it's just a rock. But if I say this is a, you know, and I explain the significance of it, that this is something that was handled by human ancestors two billion years ago, it becomes special. And so information makes things special. And but what was the shock for me? That people cared so much without any cultivation, and that what I believe in my heart is that people can care to the point where that solutions are become more within view. I mean, because right now, sometimes it doesn't seem like there's many solutions. Can you talk a little bit more about the spiritual and cultural dimensions of of recognizing these trees and their ecological systems? I think when you get into spirituality, you can get into quickly, you can get into kind of new wave fuzziness, mm -hmm. to be honest. I will say that the Hawaiians attach spirituality to them. You know, sometimes I read from Kamakau where he talks about the spirits of the forest, and you can almost feel it when you go into these areas. People always go up there and they think, oh, I'm gonna, what are you doing here today? I'm helping the forest. And I sometimes I say, yeah, they're really great, but no one, in my opinion, or in my experience, no one ever helped the forest as much as the forest helped them. And I will say that the spirituality of the Hawaiians is still important for people as people don't know what to believe uh, in our modern world. If I read people the importance of the Kawila or the Halapepe, those trees. I mean, yeah, to the Hawaiians, to the mm -hmm. early Hawaiians, that has gravity. I'm tr that's what I'm trying to do is connect people with the trees because they don't really know each other yet. That's probably another one of my little mantras is, is that why would you protect anything that you don't know or love? And so the first thing before you ask people to protect anything is to actually to ask, to ask them or to get them to re-familiarize themselves with some of the things. Do you know much about the geological and biological history of all of Maui and its central mm -hmm. valley too? Mm -hmm. Well, there's two different things, but just so geological history, uh, you know, Maui's, uh, Maui is part of Maui Nui, or what people used to call Maui Nui. So the islands of Maui, Molokai, and Kohalawi used to be one big island. And if you kind of sketch your outline, it looks kind of like the big island of Hawaii, and that's kind of what it looked like. You think the volcanoes were taller, maybe 15,000 or 14,000 feet. And then as with subsidence and uh, erosion, and you get into these uh, the current configuration of islands. And so uh, where the islands are separate, Maui, Molokai, Manai. Maui itself, the remnants of it are, I think, West Maui is like 1.86 million, and Haleakala is just under a million years old. That's the volcanoes themselves. The biota has been jumping as because the islands form and then pass off to the west, and so uh, the biota kind of jumps, so the biota can be actually older than the island it's on. What um, is a biota? Uh, plants and animals. Hmm. Plants and animals jump from older islands onto younger islands, so the biota is actually, in Hawaii, is kind of rolling on the islands, and mm. some of it's older. So that's kind of what happened with Haleakala, and that's kind of what happened with Oahe, is that it's been kind of an accumulator of some of these species. Can you tell us a bit about the biological history? Yeah, a little bit, okay. So it's on the leeward side of the island, it's opposite the trade winds, which means that it should be on the drier side, but it's at elevation. So at that elevation, at 4,000 feet, you get clouds coming over, but you don't get rain. Mm -hmm. And uh, somewhere between a cloud forest and a dry forest. It's unique from the other side. If you're looking the other side of the island, you have Hana and the Nahiku forest, and they're beautiful forests, mostly dominated by Ohia and Kor. The forests on the other side of the island are what I would call um, 
in New Zealand they've been called sanctuary forests because they're so in the modern day they're so unique and contain so many of the representatives of the past so basically the forests of the Wahi are unique and been torn apart. Do we know much about how Maui looked biologically before humans arrived here? Mm. Well obviously none of us is, was alive then and so all we can use is the little evidence that we have. The evidence is fairly until 20 or 30 years ago, nobody really knew, and people assumed that uh, the lands of today looked, were a lot like the lands of the past, uh, and maybe some degree of deforestation was involved. I think the degree of ecosystem loss and deforestation has been mostly told in the birds, probably, in the bird species that we find in these high dry areas. And so like at Oahe, almost every bird species in the Hawaiian Islands has been found below the road in Kanao in fossil bird in other words, their bones have been found there, and there's uh, so there's evidence there suggesting that the arrivals of humans really impacted these species. But prior to that, I usually say that the forest fell into the sea, except where there was lava or something like that. So forest covered the island, mm. uh, both on leeward and windward sides. In the areas that we can now consider the most open, the leeward, the leeward side of the island where sugarcane is growing and where there's open landscapes, those were the areas that were most changed. They would be dense forests where you couldn't even see a hundred, hundred feet. Wow! I, I I know a person who's involved in the reforestation of efforts in Scotland, and he always says that uh, I whenever I tell people that this isn't Scotland I and mean, this isn't the way Scotland should look, <laughs> you know, Scotland should be forested. He said I ruined Scotland for so many people, and in some ways that's the same way with Hawaii when you tell them is that these landscapes are are not the landscapes of the past, uh, certainly on leeward slopes. What's the interconnection between Maui's forests and the watershed? Some of that is intuitive, you know, which is that, you know, trees intercept precipitation and moderate its flow and their roots kind of hold the soils and all those little middle layers. kind of. So a lot, a lot of that is really simple stuff. I think what we don't know, so we, we, don't, we don't really know what the effect of no trees is versus trees because we don't have those. Owehi, we started to generate some, some data. In other words, we have reforested areas that have been there for 20 years and we compared their hydrology with pasture areas outside and when we did it the hydrologist said oh there's probably not going to be any difference because these these changes don't happen on I think the word they used was decadal time scales they don't happen in 10 or 20 years they happen over 100 years and then when they actually did the test they said wow it's really there's a lot of difference in the hydrologies of the of the forested areas and the grassland areas and it has to do more with the grassland areas are misfunctioning they're almost like capping soils and your forested areas are kind of like accepting them a little more so so you know we published a paper and but it's the beginning of recycling so we know that no trees bad grasses may cap trees good i mean those are general things on the windward slopes it's a little bit more um, subtle in that what you're having is weeds uh, they're invasive species that are either replacing or attacking the Ohia forest on that side of the island. And now there's rapid Ohia death coming in from the big island. It's not on Maui yet, and hopefully it never comes. But what we're seeing is a gradual transformation from native to non-native forest. And so rather than being deforested, it's a change in forestation, and species are not the same. And so a forest of species A and a forest of species B, especially if species B is not from there, are likely to heavily change hydrologies and watersheds. I think reforestation is really probably important on the leeward side, but on the, on the windward side there's a more subtle thing happening, which is that the forest is changing composition, and it, when it changes composition it probably will be less effective. What's the importance of women in the restoration movement, in your opinion? I went to the Society for Ecological Restoration meetings. I think somebody said, uh, it was a woman who said, uh, 
could all the men in the audience stand up? And so everybody stood up, probably about a third of them. And it was their first Australian meeting. Could all the women stand up? And there was easily two thirds of the women of the room with sort of women. And I would say that that's, that's for Society for Ecological Restoration. So if you go to a traditional scientific meeting, you're going to find that males outnumber females. But when you come to restoration, uh, and at least in this founding group, females outnumber males. And I think that has to do with more applied science a little bit more. And it has to do with a little bit more protection and restoration. So it's not so academic. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm giving women disproportional, you know, that women are more interested in that than men. But there has been a track record that women have been more inter- have been more interested in that. I hope that doesn't stay the way it is because we need men too on the party. But I would say that women, and also women are the bright thinkers, I mean, I don't want to say are the bright thinkers, but women offer a whole different kind of free thinking way that uh, that we can do to explore new techniques. So I think women are really, and as well as, to be honest, they're some of our best volunteers. You know, I mean, they're really caring. They're really good planters. Um, they plant trees really well. You know, whenever you leave a tree, that's the last time it ever sees a human. If you did a good job, it's almost a, it's, it has a lot of impact. And if you did a bad job, it has a lot of impact. So uh, good planters are people who really put themselves into it. And What does resilience mean to you? Well, I'm a biologist, so resilience for me means bio, biological resilience, which means uh, community kind of being able to protect itself once it gets, gets off its knees. And especially native forests being able to repel invasive species that would kind of alter them. So as a, as a community gets less impacted, form kind of self-rights. It's almost a guy-in thing that it develops stability. So I think that that is resilience. I, you could obviously apply it a number of ways to human and social conditions. I don't think it's much, it's nothing, we don't have much resilience in our system now, clearly. I mean, we're not a very resilient system. I don't mean to be critical, but we're just not, we're just not resilient or secure. <laughs> in your opinion, what sort of awarenesses and participation is needed by Hawaiian residents? to make Hawaii a more resilient and sustainable place? Mm. I personally think it involves a little bit of a disaster or something like that, a little bit of a warning. There are lights on the panel, glowing red, <laughs> but until the lights glow on the panel for everybody, there is a business as normal kind of attitude in the Hawaiian Island, which is probably permanent around the world, as if, you know, if things aren't changing, you know, um, why should we do anything about it? I think that probably we need to have a big red light go on the panel, and a big red light on the panel might be the basic things that we're concerned about. Food and water probably are the things that come to mind. We're food insecure and we're a little bit water insecure. So if we had a burp in either of those two things, it might uh, let the society know that we're not as secure as we think we are. And that will probably come out with societal, because it doesn't really matter what three or four people or three or 400 people think. It actually matters. I mean, it does matter because when the society is ready to move, those people will be leaders. Can you go into a little bit more detail about what food security would look like mm-hmm. on Maui? You know, I'm I'm not a food security expert, and so I don't know that. If I re, re-engineer those things into well, sustainable agriculture, not being an expert at all, I would kind of go back into these lands are productive. You know, the Hawaiian, uh, before the lands that are where sugarcane are now occupied are formerly Uwala, uh, sweet potato lands. And right now they're probably a little bit exhausted, but the former tales of them uh, are incredible fertility. Sweet potatoes so large that they're used as rollers for canoes. Whoa. Or sweet potatoes so large that two people can crawl into them and make a fire. And some of the some of the accounts say that some of these may be exaggerated. I mean, these are Hawaiians talking, saying, I have not seen a sweet potato that's large. 
but having seen the sweet potatoes as large as I have, I'm not sure if they are exaggerations or if they're far, not far from it. What that suggests for me is that and there's a line from a New Zealander who's, who says uh, that the land, the soils underneath, um, so, uh, underneath grasslands, and I would say pastures, I mean uh, sugarcane fields or pineapple fields, is the is the version of it is not the soil of those areas but the soils of forests that have been lost and so if that's the case then i would expect high soil fertility at first and then loss of that over time that has to be reinforced by fertilizers but you're starting off with good stuff you're starting off with good soils that can be restored and so i think you have some good raw materials there to start with now only now it's only the how do you do it it's not impossible it's like at Wahi. when we started forest restoration in Wahi, people told me walk away art not going to work. You save your time, and I could see that the social things are very similar right now. Mm. Walk away, save your time. What kind of car are you driving? Can't you drive a better car? Shouldn't you be taking? I mean, I don't know. Shouldn't you be taking care of yourself? But there are, if we stop that a little bit, and we there are solutions ahead. We have the raw resources. We have a wonderful island. Have deep soils. We have just a few bumps in the road. So I just the only thing I would tell people is don't despair. What gives you hope? Uh, sixth graders. I say that a little bit glibly, but uh, I were all, all people give me hope, of course, because they're bright and. But when I deal with sixth graders, uh, I deal with the sixth grader group. Somebody told me sixth graders are they kind of rise in consciousness until they hit fifth or sixth grade, and then at seventh or eighth grade they start disbelieving what people are telling them. But at sixth grade, they're kind of at their high. And uh, I've told people that you know when I grew up, everybody told me what I couldn't do. It's like, you can't do that. Who do you think you are? You know, even even being even working at Oahu, it took a lot. I had to break out of that. People telling you, "Who do you think you are?" Well, that's kind of a hold down of the old generation. I mean, I that's the practical. I know there's a practical aspect of it, but there's also a really detrimental aspect of it. These kids, sixth graders that I'm dealing with, they've never been told that. Mm. They've only been told what they can do. And so they, some of the, you might call it arrogant, but I don't see it as arrogant because they're so empowered now that they're. Uh, one, t uh, one of them wrote me a little note after I gave her a little thing saying, uh, Kumu, um, I'm going to do what you do, but I'm going to do it on Oahu. And after I do it, I'm going to write and tell you about it. So that type of uh, cocky confidence, I don't call it cocky, but it makes me think, you know, I, when I got the note, I was like, well, how can I wash dishes for your crew? <laughs> you know, because that type of brightness is going to attract brightness. So all we need is a few young leaders like that. If that young woman becomes governor, right, then then uh, I can stop worrying more. You know, I mean, I can I can feel more confident. So I think solutions are around the corner, but they're not an assurity, right? If you don't do anything, you fall into the ditch. How can people help? Um, I think it's layered, you know. Clearly, mm -hmm. you can, you know, kind of probably depends on who you are, too. You can plant a tree. That's an easy one. You can tell your kids about it. You can educate your kids in a holistic way about where we are and what we're going to have to do. Money is a really obvious one. Everybody needs money. Money can be misspent, but money can also be directed, and every dollar that goes into reforestation gets matched by government dollars. So, I mean, that's probably a, an easy one that most people say is to give money to the cause, but it is really important that our Especially from, and you know, the money that we get, sometimes it comes from private individuals like who are really just interested in doing good. And I have to say, it's really heartening. So money is something really important, but I, but probably more important even than money, maybe more important than planting trees, maybe important than educating is kind of maybe demanding it, is having consciousness and demanding it from our society, demanding it from our, 
you know, because once again, it's the politician thing that you get, you get what you pay for, or you get what you vote for, or you get what you don't vote for, or something like that. And so demanding higher leadership out of your politicians, you know, it's easy to say better politicians, you know, I mean, that's the common thing. We have to be better. You know, politicians represent us as a holistic group. And so it's pointless to criticize politicians unless we reform. And that's, so that means reforming the consciousness of people. Uh, when we reform the consciousness of people, then to the point where we're unwilling to accept some of the things that we get, that's probably the first step. Is there anything you would like to add? Nope. You're very nice people. And I really I think that the effort is a really good one because we need to shine the lights forward. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for the interview. Mm -hmm. That's the end of our interview with Art Medeiros. Find out more and learn how to volunteer with the Oahu Forest Restoration Project at www.auwahi.org. They run volunteer tree planting excursions often, and the website has lots of great pictures and well-crafted information. They would love your participation. Find out more about the Leeward Haleakala Watershed Restoration Partnership at www.lhwrp.org. They share great resources and there are many ways to get informed and involved. The Story Connective is reaching its sixth month of production. If you have been enjoying our content, please take a few moments to leave us a comment or a review. Tell us what you think. We'd love to hear from you and please tell your friends about us. In the month of June, we will be conducting a fundraising campaign for Story Connective, as well as for the projects we've highlighted thus far. The more people we have listening, the stronger our efforts will be. The Story Connective is 100% listener and viewer supported. If you support Story Connective's 501c3 mission and vision of bringing inspiring stories of resilience and possibility to the world, please make a donation and support our crowdfunded project at patreon.com slash storyconnective or by using the Be a Patron button on the Podbean podcast app. Thank you very much for your support. Interview by Rebecca Rhapsody and Loxa Clovis at storyconnective.org. Audio recording by Loxa Clovis at storyconnective.org. And audio production by Jeffrey Gaston. The intro song is Which That Is This by Dr. Turtle, released under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The outro song is by Rebecca Rhapsody. Special thanks to our nonprofit fiscal sponsor, Elsa, at ELLSSA.org. The purpose of this audio interview is for nonprofit education, news, and commentary. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License. Thank you for listening to The Story Connective. <laughs>